the door to the gas chamber never opened. And they sent us, after hours and hours and hours, they sent us back. And then the the parents, was, was dark already, by the way. The parents were there, or the women. And they, my mother said, what happened? I said, they couldn't do it this time. They'll do it next time. It was very, it was like, it's hard to believe if you live in a world that's, that that's the way it is. Sylvia and me. Hi. I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. My name is Tova Friedman. I am 84. I'm very happy to be 84. I'm very surprised that (laughs) that I'm 84. And um, I am one of the youngest survivors one because there are people who are even younger than i am but they don't remember that much so and i wrote this book together with malcolm brayband to awake people and it's two things to remember those that aren't here i feel very responsible so that the children who were murdered very innocent children shouldn't be forgotten, and also a warning of what can happen if we don't check hatred in our midst. So that's that's about it. I mean, well, Tova, I am so. Oh, I forgot to say, uh, welcome to Sylvia and me. I like that, <laughs> oh, Sylvia. I, my one of my best friends was Sylvia. Ah, uh, well. I I am so honored to have you with me today. Thank you. You are one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. The book you wrote is The Daughter of Auschwitz, My Story of Resilience, Survival, and Hope. And what we're going to talk about is going to be tough for some people to hear. But I know that one of the things that you have insisted on is that we need to remember your father told you that one of the rabbis, as he was going to yep, yep. Uh, to to be murdered, 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 yes. murdered is the word. Yep. Told your father to remember, and you are doing this for the grandchildren of the world, for the people of the world, and it is. You know, a lot of people as you don't can't talk about their experience. What you are doing is uh, is is so um, selfless, so uh, amazing. So I thank you, um, and I want to get into. We know that from the age of one to about six and a half your world really was, it consisted of starvation, gunfire, um, and and so much that people cannot understand. But can we go back a little to where your family, where your mother and father came from? And well, my family, uh, my, uh, my grandparents, they were for hot, for couple of hundred years, I think, in a small Jewish uh, town. It wasn't that small. It has 40, 50,000 people beginning of the war. It wasn't like a, like a tiny town, but it was uh, a 15%, 15,000 Jews lived there, and they lived there for generations. My grandparents were there. My great-grandparents were there because at one time, Poland was very hospitable to newcomers, especially to Jews. They wanted them to come, start businesses. They thought that they would help with the economy, and they did. There were a lot of tailors and a lot of workmen. They were they were very good workers. And, you know, they, they weren't on the dole. Every time a Jewish community started, there was work. They used to provide products for the people. So that it, the whole thing was shocking that the same neighbors who used to benefit by the work and, and the relationship turned away from us, the Polish neighbors. 
when when the Germans came. So uh, and my parents left uh, a few about a year or two before the war because my father wanted to sort of open up a business in a bigger place. But he came back right right when when the war started to be with his family, to be with his parents. And at the age of one, you wound up living in this this town. It became a ghetto, a Jewish right, ghetto. exactly, right, right. I think two. I think the not you know nineteen forty, and I was born in thirty eight. Around that time, when we came back, we went we went right away to the ghetto where my family was moved. All the Jews were moved to now, the ghetto. Someone would ask, how at the age of two, three, four, how do you remember? Um, because you have some vivid memories. And in fact, you start off the, you know, the after the first um, chapter, you start off talking about uh, the tablecloth being under well, the table. You know. What's interesting, this is the things I don't remember, I don't know. There may have been lots of things going on, but you can't forget basically, especially since my mother, my parents were with me, and my mother had a tendency to talk a great deal. She spoke all the time, almost till she died. So she she would tell me what's going on. She would explain why I have to be there, and, and I was fine with it. You know, she did it in a way that made it normal. That was normal for me. It wasn't uncomfortable. And I I, I heard people. I mean, I didn't have to be there. It wasn't like anybody would make me. It's just that it was it was it was good. It was a it, for me it was a good place. And I know my parents were right there. My father came home every night. My mother was there. My grandmother was there. And her I, I, I remember very vaguely because she stayed for a very short time with us and then she was killed. And then I remember my uncle visiting and I would get out from under the, the, the table and sit on his lap. I remember him very well. You know, so it, 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 was a, it wasn't a scary time except the outside was scary, not inside the house. Things changed when you were four. As you say, right. you lost your innocence. Um, and you say you looked beyond the tablecloth. Tell us what happened at the age of four. Oh, I can't even, at the age of four, uh, I think around that time my grandmother was killed. And I know and I was already seeing the outside more. I could hear more. I knew what was going on. Uh, I, when you looked out the window, you could see people were being shot, especially the elderly. Some of them were, and some of them were being sent away. And my uncle disappeared around that time. And my father said, "You won't see your uncle anymore." I love that man. He he was newly married to my aunt, to, uh, to my father's sister. And then and then my and then my father came and said that his parents, he helped his parents on a on a truck. And, and we pretty knew we'd never see them again. Uh, I begin to see family members disappear. It wasn't just theoretical. In fact, one of the first times that your father cried was right. when he took had to take his parents to the truck where he knew that what was going to happen was right. that he was going to of be shot. And right. the reason why he had to was because the Nazis were very good at um, making sure they wanted to make sure that people were compliant and they had a police force made up of Jewish. Right. People. Exactly. Well, you know, they used Jews for everything to do. All. The person who tattooed me was a Jew. The people in Auschwitz who who, who then took the bodies out of the gas chamber and put them in the crematorium. They were mostly Jews. The cleanup squad that we were part of in our, in our ghetto were Jews. Jews were used against Jews. You Tell know? me, you just mentioned the cleanup squad. Explain to people who don't know what that is. Well, when they... Uh, one of the... One of the ways 
um, one of the programs was that they would move uh, people from camp to camp. Lots of for psychological reasons, so that you don't get too comfortable and become friends and, and start a life with people. Although your family was gone, you could have friends. So they would every so often uh, uh, close one camp and move what, whoever was left in that camp to another camp. And then they would close that camp. I once met a woman at a conference who told me she was in 50 camps and she couldn't remember anything. She couldn't remember when she lost her parents. She doesn't remember. And I remember what she'd said. I never forgot that. She said she had a little sign saying, do you know me? She didn't know her birthday. And they're moving from place to place. So at one time, they decided they're going to get rid of this ghetto like they did in Warsaw Ghetto. They destroyed all the people and whoever was left, they they took, they took they killed them. So, so... Um, they 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 closed our ghetto and they were going to send most of the people uh i think uh well we we they went to different labor camps blizin and and different names. we went to starhovitsa and then the others were sent to a to an extermination camp whoever was left 30 they left 36 people that's the number I remember, but it may not have been because some books I read, there were 50 people. Nobody counted people. And we were the cleanup squad because they, they were always afraid that the Red Cross or somebody will come and, and, and they will see blood and bodies. So you covered everything up. You buried the bodies. You cleaned up. I remember going into the room, into the barracks, fixing a pillow. And, and, you know, to make it so that when if, if somebody were ever to come and say, look what you've done, they'll say, show us. There's, there's not even a spot of blood anywhere. So we were we were left as the cleanup squad before we were taken to the next camp. And they just kept psychologically dwindling down the numbers. The exactly. elderly, the elderly right. had no use for them. Children right. had no use. Right. Before it was a funnel, like a funneling. You started with a lot of people, less and less and less starvation, shooting, drowning, um, uh, sending to certain camps until until you went to the extermination camp. They 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 killed people outside of extermination camps. A lot, a lot, a lot. And one of the things that you have said is your mother didn't try to shield you from this. She instilled in you certain things right. that you didn't look anyone in the eye, you right. didn't move. Well, you know, till then in the in the in, in the ghetto we were together and I was very young. She was with me all the time, all the time. But when we went to the next camp, which was labor, and I was old already, I think I was like four and a half, I would have to be by myself a whole day because she worked in a fa in a ammunition factory, as did my father, as did all the adults, everybody. And that's when the and there weren't many kids left, but those kids had to fend for themselves. And that's when she was afraid that I'll get into trouble. So she taught me what she thought was protecting me well, you know so she took me to my first to my shooting so i can see that you know she 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 instilled in me self-protection self-care not only self-protection and self-care she also instilled in you human sensitivity and a sense of self worth even in the bleakest moments right you, you relayed right. a story because before you were separated and she was you spent the days alone you were uh, you and your mother you you were able to um uh accompany your mother she was working in a place where you went through the possessions right um, those all the killed. women most of the women did that work 
while the men went to some kind of other labor, which I don't even know where, but but um, the women would do the sorting of the clothing of the dead. And you saw a sweater that you... Yeah. Yeah. What did your mother say to you when you asked oh, her to that, have it? No, I, I knew right away. She said to me, this is from a, from a dead little girl. We don't want to take that. In fact, she carried that whole idea over all the way to Auschwitz. Because I don't know if I said this in a book. I can't remember. But when we were liberated and we wanted at one point to leave Auschwitz, we had no clothes. So she would, we would go to all, you know, there were these places uh, like, um, what do you call, storage places, bins, not bins, buildings, rooms, gigantic rooms with everything, gold and silver and teeth and, 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 and uh, eyeglasses. You can see them, some of them now, if you go to Auschwitz, they have them on display. And she said to me, I could take something, but she herself, she said, I won't benefit from this. I'm freezing. So I remember she took a very old coat. It was dark, either black or dark or very dark blue. And it was a man's coat, not even a woman's coat. And she cut it down to make it a little shorter for herself. She says, nobody will ever think that I'm wearing this coat because I like, uh, because I like it, but because I'm cold. She could have taken a fur coat. You know, she she instilled that in me. How did you how how did you go through all that time and survive? You've said that you weren't afraid of death. You didn't know. I didn't know. I know that people went somewhere didn't come back. Okay. But you know, look, how many of us know about death right now? I can't contemplate my own death. I'm 84. I can't I can't imagine not being here. I think all of us feel like that. So so um a child certainly wouldn't, but I knew that people went to certain places and they don't come back. In fact, when you went to Auschwitz, um you were sent to a crematorium. Right. And I never found out why they didn't do the job. I, I really don't know. Uh, I, I mean, tell us, uh, there were children. And first of all, when you got to Auschwitz, um, people were looking at you because before then, a lot of the children had been taken. And killed. all the children. Not and, a lot. and your your 90, parents, your parents hid you. 98% of children were, were killed as they arrived to Auschwitz, right on the platform, right upon arrival. And that my transport wasn't. There's all kinds of theories. See, there's nobody to really, we really don't know. But there are theories why that happened. So tell us the experience um of going to the crematorium that day uh what did they tell you was was taking place well they we all knew i we knew and we didn't know i knew that we're going to a place we're not coming back because the barrack next to us went and i want to tell you something interesting i went into a look check the other barrack, which was right next door to us. And it was empty and it was freezing. And there was a coat hanging, a little coat uh, on a hang on a on a on a hook. And inside were gloves. And I wanted the gloves and I said, no, I won't take them. Had a feeling this little girl will never be will I'll never see her again. She went. She and I'm not taking her clothes. I don't I don't want to benefit. So I remember that so well. So when they told us that we're going to get a good meal, we got to get dressed, all our clothing, it's cold outside. I know where we were going, but I didn't know. I mean, I didn't picture the gas chamber and breathing in gas, but I knew we were going somewhere. We're not coming back. 
And while you and the other children were walking to the gas chamber, there were right. a group of women. Amongst the women, you heard a voice. Right, and my name. And I said, oh, it's my name. Only my mother knows my name. So I, I, she said, where are you going? I said, to the crematorium. And all the women started to scream because they had children among the other kids who were walking with me. And I remember turning to the little girl next to me saying, why are they crying? I thought that most Jewish children have to go to the crematorium. But you're here to tell it. What happened when you got in there? Well, we, we went and they were going to dress and we, they gave us some kind of rags or something to cover up. Very, very skimpy, very nothing. Some got, some didn't get. And, and we were so cold, so cold. And they also told us to make sure that when we take off our clothes and our shoes, we should make sure that we know where they are. Because when we come back from the showers, we have to find them again. And I remember saying, I can't read those numbers. I couldn't read or write. And I just just tried to figure out how I'm going to find them again. But we never left. The door to the gas chamber never opened. And they sent us, after hours and hours and hours, they sent us back. And then the, the parents, were, it was dark already, by the way. The parents were there, or the women. And they, my mother said, what happened? I said, they couldn't do it this time. They'll do it next time. It was very, it was like, it's hard to believe if you live in a world that's that that's the way it is. You know? It's just a matter of fact. Yeah, exactly. That's the way it is. And when you said you, your mother said your name, no one said your name, no one said your name because you were known by your number. Right. We were, 27633. Number. A, A27, yeah. A. A two seven six three three. Don't forget the A. I won't forget the A. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we're talking about this, and it's it's something that it 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 is so hard to imagine. When I started your book. Your first chapter jumps ahead to 1945, when all of a sudden there's no roll call. As children, um, you were called out, you were given something to eat, you were called out for roll call, there wasn't anything and no one knew what was going on. Right, right. You were reunited in some way with your mother. Your mother found you. Right. And then something unbelievable took place because the Nazis were going through and checking to see, to make sure no one was alive because they didn't want any um, anyone to be able to say they didn't. They, they didn't want- they wanted no witnesses. That's it. That's the word. Thank you. Word retrieval I don't do anymore, but they wanted no witnesses. Right. What did you, what did your mother have you do? Because it's one of the most amazing things and it shows how you trusted her so much that you were able to do what she asked of you. I trusted her. In every single way, because I knew that I started trusting. I always trusted her. But I want to go back for a second. When we arrived and there were these terrible dogs, German Shepherd. They were my height, by the way. I, I could see their eyes. There was I was five and a half, but they were very tall, very big, big dogs. And and I looked at. I still remember the saliva coming out of their mouths, you know. And they had muzzles on. And then. And I said to my mother, oh, my God, they're going to eat me. I know, I know, I'm, now I'm going to die. See, this I understood. Yes, I didn't understand. But being torn by a dog, I understood. So she said, no, they only train to kill when you run and you won't run. The moment she said it, I knew I would live because I wasn't going to run. 
So what I'm saying, I trusted her. So when she took me to the to the infirmary <clears throat> and found a corpse that she wanted, that she chose a corpse for me, and she told me exactly what to do. It was it was it was so easy. I said, of course. Don't breathe out, breathe down, breathe into the mattress, breathe to the floor. Don't move. No matter what you hear, don't get uncovered. Don't cry. Don't. And I said, I knew what she wanted. She wanted me to blend in with a corpse, which I had no trouble doing. None. I've been seeing corpses everywhere. And this corpse was warm, must have just died. So I huddled with the corpse and she covered me up. And she, her last words to me were, I will be the only one to uncover you. And my, my last thought was, oh, she's not far away. That's good because she'll be here to uncover me. So when the smoke came because they, 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 they set the place on fire before they left, I wasn't going to get uncovered. I was just going to lie there no matter what, even if I couldn't breathe. But then she she uncovered me. You know, it, it, it was a type of a complete and utter faith in somebody. When the when Auschwitz was finally liberated, which was 77 years ago, you went back, your mother took you back to where you had lived before, hoping to find people, family, 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 family. family. You wound up running into a Polish woman who had been a neighbor you knew. And what did this woman say? Well, I I didn't know her. Well, your mother did. My mother did. Yeah. But my mother was so delighted. We were going, she was coming towards us. I still remember. And my mother sort of quickened her step. Now I'm holding on to her. And and this woman said to her, what are you doing here? I thought Hitler killed you all. This was the first welcome we got. The complicity of, so the Nazis couldn't have done it alone. The complicity of the non-Germans and, and, and so many others. I mean, you write about, the fact that uh, one of the um, one of the camps, Treblinka, they needed more trains going, and you write about the fact that there had to be some master statistician with a warped mind who planned out exactly how many trains they needed, Absolutely. what time, and whatnot. So the complicity for this horror, Absolutely. was huge. It was. It was a, a teamwork that nobody could have done this alone. It was a team. It was a job. The whole thing was, was created by extraordinarily smart people. I have to tell you that. There were no mistakes. They knew every person, every number, every, every uh, 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 train, cattle car, how many people, they figured out how many people should be stuffed into a guest chamber so it should take 10 minutes for everybody to die. In the beginning of the war, like before this, it took 20 minutes. That was too too long for Hitler. He wouldn't be able to 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 uh, he, uh, he won't be able to, to to kill fast enough, so he had the scientists do something with a gas, uh, up some number I don't know what, so that it's faster. See, this wasn't done by dummies. That's why it's so scary to me. Yes, um, I I fully agree with you. I want to get to a couple of things. When did you finally um, meet up with your father and how did that go? Because your mother was in the same camp, but your father had gone to Dachau when when you guys right. were, were well, going to the camp. It was, uh, Dachau was liberated later. So we were in Auschwitz for about a month or two after liberation because we didn't know where to go, what to do. 
we were very weak from hunger and so forth. And then we made our, our way to Tomasov, which is our hometown. And then we waited and waited. And I think about, I don't know how long, about a year, a year and a half, my father came. And first of all, he was liberated four or five, five months in April, much later. And, and it was Germany that he, he was, Dachau was in Germany. And he said that he saw us on a list. You know, there were these teenagers, 17, 18, 19, who lost their entire families. And they were brave enough, bold enough, and maybe strong enough to travel all over Europe looking for their families. So at every town they came to, they took a list. They wrote down a list of people that survived. And my father said he saw that list when one of those young people came to Dachau to look for his family. And he stole my, my name and my mother's name. One of the things that we didn't talk about, which I think is is something that we should, and it's going back a little bit. And, you know, for people, they might think it's a ping pong thing, but this to me is very important. You went through two or three selection processes throughout the time when you were living in the ghetto. And one of the first ones, your mother had to make a decision, an on-the-spot decision um, that led to something that I know you've said she angst about and couldn't forgive herself because you needed to make decisions. And one of those was um, you had two cousins, her sister's daughters, um, and they were checking papers. Right. And the people in front, the man had papers for two or three, yet he had two additional. They were relatives. And when he tried explaining he was put off to the left, which I believe was right where right they were going to be shot. Right. And your mother seeing that made the split decision when they asked how many she let go of her two nieces. Nieces. And because she had papers only for three for you, your father, and herself. And these were decisions that people were forced into making and having to live with them for the rest of their lives. I know this must have haunted your mother for for forever. Um, did you think anything of it at that particular time? No. Um, no, I was four. You were but four. But I looked at my cousins. I, I looked at them. And I saw they were like standing somewhere by themselves until somebody came to to, to take them away. They were like a- standing. They didn't run right away to their mother because their mother had been taken to where all those who would die. They were waiting for, for, for a transport. They were waiting to be taken away. And they were like standing. And then somebody came and took them away and I never saw them again. And people don't understand that these decisions had to be made. There were a lot of people who say, well, you know, why didn't they put up a fight? Why didn't they this? Why didn't oh, they? Oh, my that? gosh. I know that. I know. What, what do you have that. to say to these people who, who. I don't think those people have no concept what the whole thing was about. I mean, let, let me, I don't know. First of all, I like to talk to them directly. Go right if ahead. They see, <laughs> if they see their parents let's say let's say let's say my parents I'll, I'll 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 do that if they see their parents being killed and then some of them had their children being killed what fight is left in them who do you want to fight for for yourself and who do you, what are you going to fight with you know jews we're different now by the way we've learned we've learned and this is why israel is 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 in some way a powerful country with soldiers and 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 airplanes and whatever people have you know to 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 protect oneself but at that time jews especially from poland and most of these 
who were killed for Polish Jews, we weren't even allowed to kill a chicken. It was against our religion. You can't you you you, you can't just shoot an animal animal and eat it. Only one person in the community could commit murder, meaning killing a chicken. That's committing murder. We know nothing about fighting back or guns or shooting or we just our tradition wasn't like that. And so first of all, our tradition was very, very, very passive. We were scholars and and or, or maybe shoemakers and tailors, you know, artisans. We weren't we, we weren't and number one, number two, they took the the emotional capacity out of us when you see your the loved one being shot in front of you you really don't want to fight i can't see a mother fighting for herself when she just saw three of her kids being shot right in front of her i, I can't imagine i wouldn't i wouldn't now i mean I, I, you know who do you fight for for your family if the family is gone what are you going to do your life becomes not that important anymore. It's it's very very yeah it's 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 a big problem. But there were uprisings, like the Warsaw Ghetto. There were I think twenty six, twenty seven uprisings. Most of the people were killed. Your your mother was your rock, and I know that one of the things you write in the book is the fact that. She wanted you to survive. You were very important to her. And she thought that if just one Jewish child survived, then they could do what you're doing. And that is never forget, remember, make sure that people remember. And that is what you're, you, you are doing. Um, for those who don't know, you became a therapist. Yes, I am. When did you get to the United States? What? I was eleven. I was eleven and a half. Nineteen fifty. We were in a displaced people camp for a few years. Then I had TB, so I had to go to a sanatorium, you know, where they take care of people who have tuberculosis. And then they let me into the United States together with my parents. Nineteen fifty. When you were the years in the in the displacement camp, um, I believe that's when you learned more about Judaism and yes, because you didn't know, you just knew no. the word oh, I, Jewish. I not, yeah, I didn't know exactly. I said um, so. Uh, we had teachers that came from Israel in the DP camp, and there was the first time when they sort of they they taught me the Israel. Alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. I learned it way before I learned the Amer the English one, you know. And uh, when there was in 1948, when the state of Israel was declared, they made a parade, and they they showed us what an Israeli flag looks like, and they sort of brought back some of the pride. And and I and I, that's the first thing I, I I realized. What what am I? This is who I am. I am, I am not to be killed, but I have to, to march in a parade. I was nine at the time. It was very a uh, revelation. It had to be. Uh, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine because now all of a sudden your identity wasn't someone who was just uh, a, right. a, a, a Jew that needed to be eradicated. Just, exactly. you know, exterminated because... Right. Because you had no idea who could who could even fathom what was in their head. And what people don't understand is that Hitler didn't just arrive. Mein Kampf was exactly in, in the 20s. He right. had 20 years of, of building and building and building. So it wasn't just overnight, this monster. That's exactly here. right. That's why I'm saying I didn't wake up one day in concentration camp. It was a very slow process, like they burning. I, I hard for, for me to imagine how those brilliant people, the German people, have very educated as a as a group. 
and all the professors at the universities allowed and participated in book burning. I can't imagine that. Bible and all American writers, all of them, and, and, and Jewish writers and, and anything that had to do with freedom were burned and the professors condoned it. They, they were the first ones to set fire to, the, to all the philosophy books. I, I, it's it's like it's like a it's like a, a country going mad. You first started talking um, back in the nineties. I think you you wrote. You I were think 54. so. Yeah. You were fifty four, yeah, so. and you told the story about how your mother um, got a piece of bread and gave that to you for your, I believe, your sixth birthday. Right, in Auschwitz. And she was beaten. She had stolen a potato. Right. She was working in the potato fields or the right. potato, and stolen a potato. Oh, and then yeah, she was doing a potato. Right. And, um, and I think and I think it's connected. In 19, she was 45 years old, and she said she had a terrible headache, and she died. And that was one of the first times where you spoke and it was uh, to a school and the children were between the ages of 12 and 14. Right. And you talk about how their reaction, you, you felt embarrassed, yet they came up, they applauded you and they came up and thanked you. And one girl said, now she doesn't feel so bad about, you know, that, you know, something that she thought was so bad in her life is, is just, nothing um that you know there are so many other things and then when 9 11 happened you were a therapist you went in and yeah and talk tell us how that changed uh how you're talking about the holocaust and what you went through changed for for me or for the for the people i spoke to uh, first for the people you spoke to, well, and then I came, for you. I came to this to this uh, a building. They had been. They had, it was a, a. It was like all executive after nine eleven, and you know the collapse of the buildings. They moved many of the executives to a different building. They were still in New York, though, and they moved them to an empty building with nothing there, just desks, no computers. They had. But they came to work. Those people didn't want to stay home. So they came all dressed with suits and ties. And, and, and we sat around these, these tables. And I'm standing there. And nobody's saying a word. Complete silence. And then I start telling them about myself a little bit. And that sort of allowed them to express their feeling. And they were just unbelievable feelings. How they felt. Many of them had to identify the bodies of of their co-workers because nobody ident could identify them. And it was such a such an unbelievable two hour session. And then there was a minister among the work among the executives. I mean he his role was not a minister at work. He had a church, but at work he was an executive and he started singing. And they all sang, and I remember, and each one expressed what is the most important thing in the world, and they said their families. They didn't realize how how some of their friends, their colleagues, said goodbye to their families and never saw them again. And they realized how lucky they were. It was a fabulous, I mean, I'll never forget that session. It was fabulous. And how did that that experience change you in 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 opening up more about what you went through. well i was the director at the time of jewish family service it was you know non-profit uh agency and i i started a group for 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 people who were either victims or knew somebody whoever wanted to come to the group and we spent two years I think with people who were who were uh, victims in some way, some lost their fight, their 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 friends, some lost their neighbors, some lost their spouses, 
And the one woman I remember lost her husband. She said goodbye to him, never saw him again, and his bones were never found. So she was like had unfinished business. So they buried an empty coffin. But, you know, I realized that this kind of tragedy and trauma goes on forever. Forever. This wasn't the Holocaust, but people certainly, you know, uh, they, 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 they suffered as if it were. It was, it, it was very, 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 very poignant. Well, you've said that you're you've been channeling your trauma into what you call undoing Hitler's plan. <laughs> Not very successfully undoing. Well, you know, first no, but you keep what you're well, what you are undoing is he didn't want any evidence of this. He didn't right. want anyone to remember. He expected to exterminate everyone. So right. you it's, are undoing right. his plan. Exactly. First, I'm very vocal. So he, okay. And then he wanted to eradicate all of Judaism. We're all very Jewish, um, observant to different levels. We're all kosher. My grandchildren know about everything. And they're also very vocal. As you said, my, my, my grandson put me on TikTok so that everybody will know. Um, I'm, I'm sort of undoing, she wanted, she wanted, wanted us to die, we're thriving. We're not only surviving, we're thriving. And of course, Israel is a symbol that, we, that we're that here. And we're here to stay and we're here to multiply. You know, you know the Bible says multiply, we're trying. <laughs> well, um, two things I want to talk about. One is we talked about the fact that it took Hitler years of, of, of you know, he was around Absolutely. and people didn't stop him. With everything that's going around on today in, in Ukraine and, and Russia and so on, what, I mean, do you still have hope for humanity? I don't know. Very scary. I don't know. We have not yet evolved. We still are. I don't know. It's too much. Too much pain is going on in America. There's so much hatred. Can you imagine the shooting of those children oh. in schools? You know, we have a Jewish holiday now, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur. Our synagogues are manned by police. By police. When we go in. Yeah, police is outside. I mean, uh, hired police, not the city yes. police. But we have to have we have to have security. Very, very scary. In fact, we're taping this on October 3rd, the Monday before Yom Kippur, which is on this right. Wednesday. Right. It's the holiest day uh, for Jews. It's a day of atonement. Tell me how you feel about God. You're, you're religious. You know, uh, we're supposed to atone for our sins. Well, I'm wondering what I sinned. You know, sometimes I have trouble with God. So maybe I believe in him. Otherwise, I wouldn't have trouble with him, right? You only have trouble with somebody that you think is there. You don't have trouble with a non-existent. So I guess I do. But when I sit there, I'm going to be in the temple fasting, supposed to fast like 28 hours or something. I'm not sure. I'm going to, And I'm going to say, forgive me for my sins. But what I really would like to say, I really should try. You really should ask me for forgiveness. Tova, to young people out there today, what do you want them to take away from, from our conversation? Well, first of all, I want them to, to realize what, what is the end result of 
prejudice and hatred. The end result is death. Somebody's death. You know, and that that it has to be stopped before it go gets out, uh, out of becomes out of control. I think of hatred almost like a um, cancer. You know, one cell gets cancerous, and you don't take care of it, and, and we, before you know it, the body is dying, or it's too late to do anything about it. So that they should be aware of what's going on around them about the terrible bullying, the meanness. And they should they should think, especially when they're young, to do something with their lives, to leave this place, this earth, a little better than they found it. And it's not going to be better if they're going to allow even... It's okay to hate. It's part of human nature. But it's not okay to do something about it. It's okay to dislike your neighbor, but it's not okay to go and hit him. You know, you know? Sir Sir Ben Kingsley wrote the oh, word yeah. in your I book. Just got, I just got a phone call from his office while I'm talking to you. Well, he wrote the foreword, and this is what he wrote. On driving away from my morning with Tova, the closing lines of Shakespeare's King Lear came to mind. The oldest hath born most, we that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. Then he writes, Eli Wiesel would, I'm sure, allow us to use his phrase when we cite Tova Friedman as a heroine of truth and memory. I love him. I just want to tell you, I have never met a more wonderful human being besides an actor. I know I love his acting, but as a person, I have never had a better experience face to face with somebody like him because we, we, we met for an hour. It's a privilege. I hope he ever hears this. I don't know. Tova, I want to thank you for taking the time. And thank I you. want to remind everyone the name of the book is The Daughter of Auschwitz. And also, um, you're on TikTok at Tova Talk. Um, Tova, again, um, thank you because we need to remember we can never forget. And what you're doing takes courage and resilience. And it's not just survivor, it's 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 persevering and living. So Sylvia, I, I wanna thank you. You know, you're part of the process. Well, you're, you're part of the of, of repairing the world, because I don't know how many listeners you have, but here are just the two of us. And I assume all your, all your listeners will get something out of it. So you really are part of the whole process. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. This has been a Life of Prey production.